All right, good Monday morning here, Four Oaks Church. It is April 4th, 2022. Welcome to Romans Rewind. This is where we take 10 or 15 minutes every weekday morning to follow sort of behind concurrently with our series, preaching series on Sunday mornings at Four Oaks through the Book of Romans. So much there, um, so little time um, because there's um, just an incredibly rich deposit of of biblical truth that we need some extra time here during the week to get us into God's word, follow up things from the sermon, um, apply it to our lives, um, etc. So we have been preaching through the book of Romans and right now we're in Romans 8 and if Romans is your favorite book, Romans 8 is probably your favorite chapter and undoubtedly Romans 8, 28 um, or thereabouts um, are some of your favorite verses in the Bible. And we are introduced to this idea in Romans 8, um, 28 and following, that we are predestined. And we want to talk a little bit this week about the backdrop to this, what would prompt Paul to write about this, what does it mean. One of the things that I often tell people is that we can't just act like these terms in the Bible um, aren't there and that we can just ignore them um, because there is controversy about them or because there's disagreement about what they mean. So words like election, predestined, chosen, these are all biblical words. We find them all over the place. We find them all over the place in Paul's writings. And we're going to look at that topic this week. One of the things I, I often tell people is it's not really an option whether you believe in predestination or not. The Bible is incredibly clear, is it not, that we are predestined. The issue is always going to be what, what do we believe about it? And, and what, do we, what is Paul exactly putting his finger on when he, when he talks about this? Let, let's read the relevant verses and let me introduce us to this topic this week. Romans 8, 28. And we know that, all, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I remember being in seminary, and they um, the, the the name of the of the student cafe where we would eat lunch every day, um, playing off the the hard rock cafe. They called it the solid rock cafe. I didn't make up the name. Okay, don't don't pin this on me. But I remember that we would um, follow up our um, things that we were learning in class, and we would sort of debate them and pick them apart over lunch every day. And, and, and in that way, we, we did often talk about predestination and election, and they became sort of a, a d debating point, right? They, they became sort of this abstract topic that we stripped out of its biblical context and that we examined philosophically and theologically and systematically, when in reality, I don't think that's the way this doctrine is meant to be discussed or understood. In fact, I think it misses the point, right? And the point being 
that there's always a pastoral context for what's in the Bible. In other words, Paul didn't just simply willy-nilly decide he was going to talk about predestination or, um, or, or, to, or to debate a theological point that's sort of um, distantly removed from his hearers. It's not like, uh, you know, I need a good debate on this topic or I was thinking some things about this and here's my hot take on it. No, that's, that's the mistake we often make, right? We, we treat these theological topics as if they are debate points to be won or lost, when in reality, Paul talks about them for a reason, or John, or whichever, or Peter, whichever biblical writer, that there's always a pastoral context, there's always a redemptive context that the biblical writers are speaking to. And it's only as we understand that and flesh that out, okay, can we really deeply appreciate um, these doctrines, election, predestination, being chosen. They are precious doctrines. They are doctrines that God has given us um, for assurance, for our faith, for our confidence, um, for the building up of knowledge and who God is and and a deep trust and faith in who he is and what he has done. And so, so well, part of what we want to do um, this week is to begin to flesh some of these redemptive contextual things out so that we kind of have a place or a context to understand them in terms of what Paul is talking about. Now, in a month or so, we're going to be into Romans 9. And it's in Romans 9 that Paul has a very specific context in mind, right, as he writes about these things, and it's and it's related to why the people of Israel have rejected their own Messiah, and if God is sovereign, how can this possibly happen? Now, we're going to save that discussion um, for that time, but, but, but let me kind of ramp us up to speed here a little bit and talk about the idea of sovereignty and prayer, okay? And, and sovereignty and prayer, oftentimes, one of the things that philosophically seems to make sense to us, well, if God is sovereign, if he predestines, if he elects, if he chooses, um, and, and, and his will is decisive, then, then why would we pray? What, in, what, in what way would our prayers even matter in that sort of context? If God is sovereign, why pray? Now, in his little book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, J.I. Packer addresses this very topic, and he sort of shines a light on a different aspect of this, and he asks the question. The question is not, if God is sovereign, why pray? The question should be, if God isn't sovereign, why would I pray? Okay, think about that for a second. We think, humanly speaking, well, if God's sovereign, we, we, we shouldn't pray. Why should we bother? Packer says, well, if God isn't sovereign, then why are you praying to him? And he uses the example of um, a loved one or a friend or someone that we know who has um, who is not following Christ, who is not a Christian, and and how we think about that in relationship to God. Well, what is all excuse me all of our impulses as it relates to sharing our faith? Well. Um, our impulse is to is to know, um, is it not, that God is gonna he's gonna have to get involved with this, right? That he's gonna have to open eyes and hearts 
that he has to orchestrate circumstances um, to bring people into alignment with his will to open the eyes of their heart. After all, people are dead in their sins. People are blinded by, from the truth, um, by the spirit of the age. And so, so Packer says, whether we even consciously think it or not, all of us operate from the premise that God is sovereign, that he elects, that he predestines, because our first instinct early should be, is to pray. And by praying, we are communicating something. We are communicating, God, your will is decisive here. Unless you get involved, unless you work, then all of this is for nothing. I can talk till the cows come home, but unless you're the one that opens eyes and hearts, then this is going to be futile. And so as we're, as we're thinking about this, right, um, if, if God is not sovereign over salvation, then we, we have to ask, why would we want to pray at all? If man's will is decisive, if, if, his, if his freedom and his choice, right, is the ultimate objective value in the universe over God's sovereignty, then why would we even bother praying, right? We need to be polishing up our evangelism skills. We need to learn, be learning to talk with more tact and, and knowledge. But the very fact, Packer says, that we are all drawn instinctively to pray for those that we want to come to know him is a tacit uh, uh, acknowledgement, right? That um, we know that God is sovereign and that we are completely dependent upon him to draw someone to, to himself. So thinking about prayer just for a second in the context of election, what we find over the course of the church, right? The history of the church, is that where the knowledge of God is great and it increases and there is a centrality, to, centrality to, the, to the view of God in our lives, prayer among God's people increases. But when God is devalued, when he is dethroned, when we don't think about him as being sovereign and Lord and King, then prayer decreases. And, and the reason, I think, because of this is that when we have a man-centered theology we're going to live out man-centered lives. We're going to live out prayerless lives. But when we come to God knowing that he is sovereign, knowing that he accomplishes his will through the prayers of his people, and that unless he gets involved in whatever we're praying for, that our efforts are ultimately you know, futile, we are here, here, this is what spurs on the power of God's people in prayer. Now, just because God is sovereign, right? This doesn't mean our prayers don't matter. In fact, they, mat they, they matter all the more. And it's very clear, like James tells us, that the prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. And this is where we need to check our philosophical categories at the door and understand that it's not our job to sort out the ways of God when it comes to prayer God is sovereign and he commands us to pray. God is sovereign and it is through the prayers of his people that he accomplishes his will. The only reason we want to pray or have the instinct to pray is because God is prompting us. And so, of course, our prayers matter. Of course, when there is prayerlessness, there is lack of fruit, okay? Of course, when there's prayerlessness, there's lack of trust and faith. And oftentimes, God can withhold, right, blessing because we're not praying. 
And the reason that is, is that he ordains our prayers to be the very means or one of the means by which he accomplishes his will. And so what I want to want us to walk away today with is one, just an understanding that election, sovereignty, predestination, being chosen, all have a redemptive pastoral context in the Bible, okay? Um, but number two, as it relates to prayer, um, we, um, we see here how God's sovereignty prompts us to pray, empowers us to pray, gives us confidence to pray, versus devaluing and de-incentivizing us to pray. Um, because he's sovereign, we have confidence that he can do what he has promised to do. Okay, that wraps today. Um, we're going to continue to talk about this doctrine of election predestination within, the, within a variety of different pastoral contexts. And tomorrow, in fact, we are going to talk about evangelism. We kind of alluded to it today. Um, today was prayer tomorrow, evangelism, and how the sovereignty of God plays into that. But for today, let me pray for us and we're going to go. Lord, thanks for the time this morning. And we don't want to be debaters or philosophers who kind of wrench your truth out of its context, or we just want to study it and have it imprinted on our hearts in a deep and powerful way, or let your idea of your sovereignty spur us on to prayer today and trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. See you tomorrow.